The scripture reading this morning comes from Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. morning, church. Low energy. I expect more from the 11 o'clock congregation, okay? I mean, I, I give more grace to 9 o'clock, but you guys need to come with more energy. Good morning. Thank you. That, that, that helps the preacher. All right, I want to welcome a few uh, brothers and sisters who are here for the first time. I have a Joshua Yu uh, joining us from D.C. Joshua, where are you sitting? Where are you? Oh, oh there you go. Good. Okay. Very bold, thank you. And we have also Nicole Lee from D.C. Nicole, uh, sitting right next to Joshua. Okay, great. Let's give Nicole a warm welcome. And I also met Alex for the first time, I believe it was. Uh, young means older brother sitting over there on that side. Alex, you can just read. Yeah, it's fine. Good. Thank you. All right. I think he managed to slip through the welcoming area without, you know, receiving a card. So welcoming team, he's a hand, hand the brother a card, okay? Also, I met uh, Sister Joy from Philly. She's uh, Chanel's high school friend sitting on that end over there. Thank you. Let's uh, give Joy a warm welcome. Great. All right. I feel extra blessed because Pastor Hughes has been praying for me a lot. He, uh, he, he was asked to pray for me during the staff retreat, and uh, he also prayed for 9 o'clock, you know, extended, and then again at 11. So thank you, Pastor Hugh. Uh, all right, looking forward to giving God's word uh, to you all uh, from Zechariah chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing our series in this book, and um, as I've been saying, Zechariah was given eight visions in total, and he was called to share these visions to God's people in order to offer them comfort and hope as they were called to rebuild their lives after spending many decades in exile. It was a difficult period for them. Uh, today, we'll be reflecting upon the sixth and seventh vision because 
uh, these two are best understood together. I'm going to spend probably a little more time unpacking the sixth vision, and I'll uh, conclude the message uh, as I present the seventh vision, okay? Unfortunately, I don't have any actual image to share with you uh, through our screen because I just I couldn't find an appropriate one. Um, my Google search failed me this past week, so we're going to have to use our imagination today, okay? The sixth vision was that of a flying scroll, okay? Uh, for those of you who are not quite awake, it's not a flying squirrel. Um, I think Nancy walked in today. She said, she confessed, oh, I thought it was uh, the vision of a frying pan. No, it's not a frying pan. It's a vision of a flying scroll. So picture one in your mind. What do you think a flying scroll would have meant to an ancient Jew? You know, in, in biblical times, scrolls were essentially used to record scripture. And so an ancient Jew would have thought of a flying scroll as basically God's word that was being flown through the land, or the Bible. You can think of the Bible flying throughout the earth. But back in those days, they would have only had a portion of the Old Testament. And then the context today suggests that what was written in this scroll was essentially God's law. Okay, and so you can imagine, or I think you ought to imagine, God's moral law, right? his law code, like the Ten Commandments, written on a scroll flying throughout the earth. Pretty strange vision. It was a magical scroll, okay? Now, besides the fact that this scroll had the special ability to fly, there are a few other notable features of this scroll that we're not supposed to simply overlook. So let me take a, a few minutes to unpack these important features. Okay, first, notice that this was a giant, supersized scroll. We're told that its length was 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Okay, translation, it was a 30-foot-long and 15-foot-wide flying scroll, big enough to fill virtually all of your living rooms, right? It was big enough to fill this stage. It was a large scroll. Now, what do you think God would be trying to communicate to his people by giving them a vision of a supersized flying scroll with his law written on it? I don't think you have to overthink this because some things are meant to be obvious, okay? A giant scroll containing God's law that flies throughout the earth right, signifies that God's law is meant to be clearly visible for all people to see, okay? God's law is clearly revealed to all people. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your background. Doesn't matter what your religion. Okay, God's law is revealed for all people to see. Unbeliever, believer alike, doesn't matter, right? Romans sort of uh, explains this in a helpful way. I'm not gonna read through the entire passage because Pastor Xiong told me not to today. <laughs> uh, but to sum it up, okay, basically he's saying, hey, God's revelation, right? Some parts of it, it's, it's common to all people, right? Of course, you have this added advantage if God basically gives you his law book in the form of the Bible, right? Of course, the Jews had that advantage, but even if you're not a Jew, even if you were a pagan Gentile who had no access to the Bible, in Romans, God says, there's no excuse. You still have the revelation of God. You have enough revelation because guess what? My law is written in everyone's heart. 
right? You have the conscience that God has given to you, right? And the picture is that those who have received God's revelation in the form of their conscience, they, because of their rebellion, because of their sin, they do whatever they can to suppress the knowledge of God's truth and rebel against him. That's the problem, right? And so... This is one of the realities that the flying scroll represents, right? The problem is not that God's law is unclear to us, okay? The problem is that the human heart is so rebellious that it will take every opportunity it can to reject God's law and suppress it and even to rewrite the law according to its own liking so that what is good is condemned as evil and what is actually evil is celebrated as good, as we now see happening all the time in this fallen culture we're living in. Another notable feature of this flying scroll is that it acts like a military drone with this human tracking technology and it has the ability to actually destroy homes. It's very interesting how it's depicted here. Listen to verse four. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it, it shall Enter, it's supposed to be a scary thought, okay? This flying scroll, it manages to <laughs> enter into the house of the thief and enter into the house of him who swears falsely. In other words, it enters into the liar's house, right? The cheat, cheater's house. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. Doesn't matter what your house is made of, basically. It will destroy it. It will bring destruction, What is God saying here? Well, he's saying that our sins, it cannot be hidden from him. It's like no matter how hard we try to hide our sins, I mean, you may think that you are safe in your own homes, but no, this flying scroll will somehow enter your homes and it will find you. That would make an interesting movie script, right? It will find you. You cannot escape this. And so the basic point, I believe, is that there's really no point in trying to pretend that you are innocent. There's no point in trying to hide the fact that you are a sinner because God will find you. You will be discovered in the end. I love how one writer put it. How solemn is the fact that nothing can be concealed from God. Though he be invisible to to us, we are not so to him. Neither the darkness of night nor the deepest dungeon can hide any sinner from the eyes of omniscience. The trees of the garden were not able to conceal our first parents. No human eye beheld Cain murder his brother, but his maker witnessed his crime. Sarah laughed derisively in the seclusion of her tent, yet God knew Achan stole a wedge of gold and carefully hid it in the earth, but God brought it to light. David tried to cover up his wickedness, but the all-seeing God sent one of his servants, the prophet Nathan, to say to him, you are the man, you are guilty. We see this pattern throughout scripture. Nothing can be hidden from God. That's what one of the lessons is from the flying scroll. Now, a third notable feature of this scroll is that it references two of the Ten Commandments, right? The Eighth Commandment is mentioned, right? Not steal. The Ninth Commandment on providing false witness, right? Basically lying and stealing. 
I, I believe, I mean, there, there are a few theories out there as to why this is, but I, I believe the best explanation for this is that the scroll is highlighting what the two most prevailing problems in the lives of the Jews were during that time, right? Lying and stealing. Zechariah chapter eight, a later chapter, seems to confirm that these sins were a problem among God's people during this time. It reads, there are the, there are the things that you shall do. So first of all, speak, please, speak to one another truth. <laughs> Stop lying. Right? Render in your gaze judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Don't cheat each other, right? Don't love false oath, right? Don't provide false testimony. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Now, some of, uh, I read some commentary, and, and some scholars call these mercantile sins because these were sins commonly committed in the marketplace, right, in the context of doing, you know, business transactions. And in, in order to understand why these sins uh, could have possibly come possibly become a problem for God's people during this time, I want you to consider once again how difficult uh, the circumstances were for the Jewish people uh, during this period, okay? Remember, after being displaced from their land, I mean, just think about having to relocate your entire family and having your homes destroyed by your enemies, and now you're displaced, you're driven into exile as slaves, and now they, they return, after several decades, they return home and they're called to rebuild their lives and put their lives back in order. That was no small task. I mean, that would have been hard enough to do alone. But on top of that, God called them to build his house, right, his temple. And that was a massive building project. I mean, any, any building project would stress you out, but that was a large building project which would have required God's people to sacrifice precious time and resources. And I can imagine how the common Jew would have thought to, his, uh, to himself, look, God, please, I haven't even figured out how I'm gonna put food on my own table, right? I, I haven't even figured out how I'm gonna pay my own rent. And yet you call me to sacrifice time and energy to build your house, really, right now? Don't you know how difficult it is? Life was extremely hard for them. And you know, when life gets hard, what are we often tempted to think? Think about your own situations. Think about your own past when life was hard for you. Right? Aren't you tempted to think, you know, God would surely understand if I cho chose to not, you know, not be entirely honest with my clients, perhaps, or customers? You know, what if I sort of like tweaked the scale a little bit, right, to my advantage? took advantage of that person or this person. I gotta pay my bills, right? I gotta provide for my family. You know? And I'm, I'm serving the Lord you know, every weekend. I mean, God surely would understand if I wasn't completely honest. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that when life gets hard, people are more tempted to cut corners and cheat the system, you know? I'm sure many of you know uh, people with side hustles these days. You know, a lot of people are still working at home. Guess what they do? They apply for multiple jobs, right? And, and they, they try to make their boss think that, oh, I only have one job, I'm full-time here, right? But they have like two, three full-time jobs. <laughs> and many have, they have side hustles, right? Some of them, like maybe if you're in a particular community, you know, you, I, I've heard testimonies of, hey, in the past, I've sold drugs, you know? Not me, okay, but I'm saying other people. I've, I've sold drugs in the past, you know? I was that guy. 
You know, I, nowadays, uh, you kind of see on the news quite often these, these smash and grab schemes happening, right? Groups just kind of go into a store and they just, it's a massive shoplifting scheme. Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you do that. And be, why? Because life is hard. Don't you can't you see? Life is hard. The economy's tanking. <laughs> what do you expect us to do? We gotta pay our bills. We gotta survive somehow. And people justify, right, their wrongful behavior because life is hard. See if you can relate to this. Haven't you as a Christian okay, tried to justify your own sin based on how much you have sacrificed for the Lord? That's honestly, I confess, it's one of my temptations. I have to confess, I'm not proud of it at all, but you know, one morning after completing a doctor's appointment, I had to, I mean, my, my schedule, so I got, I, had to, I got to rush home, and so I was trying to find a shortcut. So I went into this narrow neighborhood road to kind of make a three-point turn to kind of get out and, and quickly go home. Uh, and, you know, normally these, those turn because I, I have a relatively new car, although that car now has a lot of miles on it. Um, I've been driving around the kids too much, I guess, but the, the car has a pretty, pretty reliable uh, rear-view camera, which I rely on a lot, okay? I'm no longer, like, always have to turn back. Uh, I'm just looking at the screen in front of me. But that morning, as I was trying to do this three-point turn, I look at the screen, and oh my goodness, right, the sun, <laughs> the, the camera was directed into the sun, so I, I couldn't, I was blind. I was blind, yeah? But, you know, I, I'm a veteran driver. You know, I used to not rely on these, you know, gadgets. I was just confidently just making, I had plenty of room, but no, right? All of a sudden, I hear a crack and then a thump, okay? But I, I don't feel much. I just heard something. I heard something. I was like, okay, maybe I just scratched something outside. I, I step out of the car. I go behind. I look. And oh, my goodness. I was so, so surprised to see that the car basically hit a corner beam that held this person's fence together in her yard, Okay. And it basically demolished two sides of the fence. I'm like, how can my car, I just, it was like a little bump, wasn't it? And I, did I do this? I was trying to justify, did I really do this? It couldn't have been me, right? Uh, and then I thought, well, I guess it had to be me. But I looked around and like, no one was watching, no one was around. Maybe I'm safe, right? Maybe, maybe I should just kind of drive away, right? And God, God would surely understand because I've been low on cash these days. <laughs> he would surely understand. And doesn't he know, like, I'm, I've been serving him so faithfully over the years. Surely he would excuse this one mistake. I'm not proud of it. But honestly, I was really, I was actually tempted to leave the scene without knocking on that person's door. Um, <clears throat> okay, long story short, my conscience kicked in. Okay, and uh, I ended up meeting with this owner, okay? Thankfully, I was actually blessed. Uh, I, I was blessed, also ashamed <laughs> that I had this prior thoughts, but I was blessed because, turns out, this older lady, uh, she shares our common faith. She's a Christian, and she was actually very gracious, and it's as if I sort of um, made a new friend, right? Uh, she was so kind and, and uh, understanding, she did charge me, though. She did charge me. But um, I had to pay something. But, uh, you know, she found 
someone in her neighborhood that did it for cheap, and, and she said, yeah, you know, thank you for letting me know. Uh, I had people that ran away in the past. <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you. Because, because it's like, yeah, next to this, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> brothers, sisters, one of the lessons the Flying Scroll teaches us with the Eighth Commandment and Ninth Commandment written on it is that the way in which we con conduct ourselves in this world, right, in the marketplace, in the classroom, the way you conduct yourselves in your neighborhoods, behind closed doors, when no one is looking, right, the way you conduct yourselves in this world, it, it's meant to show the true character of your faith. It's meant to reveal the true character of your worship. Like, why you're here. Like, if you're the kind of person who always says, well, everyone cuts, everyone does it. What's the big deal? Everyone cheats the system, so why, why can't I? Then you know what? You don't really know God's character. This corrupt society we're living in may tolerate you and even celebrate you, but God will not. He will not. God does not want our faith to be disconnected with real life. He wants our doctrine. Okay? He wants what we confess with our lips, be consistent with how we live out our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. He wants integrity. He wants you to have integrity, brothers and sisters. Right? You're not to compartmentalize your faith and say, well, in this sphere and in this sphere, I'll let God rule over them. But in, in these spheres, I'm gonna keep these to myself. And I'm gonna protect, gonna protect these spheres, and he's gonna kind of give me freedom to do whatever I want to. You cannot compartmentalize your faith in that way because Jesus is meant to be Lord over all of your life, amen? G.K. Chesterton once put it this way, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. I think that was a bit of a witty way to put it. Like if you come on Sunday worship, if you come on Sunday, rather, to worship the Lord, but live as if God does not exist from Monday through Saturday, I mean, should we really believe that your worship on Sunday is genuine? What does it all mean? You know, why are you here? If you just, as soon as you leave these doors, you know, you're, you're living as if God does not exist. Right? It's one of the lessons of the flying scroll. Now, the seventh vision is a vision of a woman in a basket, okay? Literally, uh, what the, the word used there is epha, okay, E-P-H-A-H. -H. Um, now, an epha was essentially a storage jar uh, that normally contained grain. Now, it wasn't a big jar, actually. Uh, I think a average-sized person can barely squeeze into it. And so in our passage, it's not used for grain. It's, it's used, interestingly, uh, to store a woman who is meant to be a personification of sin. So think of it this way. God is putting a face to sin. And this is important, I believe, because we tend to think that God somehow only judges our sin without judging the sinner. But that's not exactly true, right? This vision of a woman who personifies sin is meant to inform us that there's a real 
living face behind sin, and that when God judges sin, guess what? Actual people will be judged for their sin. And so when you envision this woman's face, okay, don't, please do not envision the woman in your life that you would despise or hate. <laughs> You're missing the point, okay? When you envision this woman's face, you're to think about your own face. Your, it's your face. It's my face, okay? And it's a small jar, and we, we're like squished. We wanna get out, like sin wants to get out. Sin wants to, you know, spread and do its thing. And we're like this, we're trying to get out, but then what happens? There's a weighted lid being slammed down on us. That's the image you should have. So far, it's been very discouraging, right? It's, you know, uh, we've been given so far a very grim picture of reality. I mean, there's nowhere to hide from this flying scroll. And the woman slammed shut inside a jar is meant to represent our own sin. So then what hope is given to us? from this passage. Well, thankfully, the, the vision does not end with this weighted lid slamming us shut, okay? Because uh, we're also introduced to two women with wings. It says, like, with the wings of a stork. And I want you to pause there with me for a moment because there's a bit of a wordplay uh, being used here. The word, the Hebrew word for stork is hasida, okay, hasida. I didn't pronounce that exactly correctly, but it's just, you know, in English, it's like hasida, okay? But the root word for hasida is hesed, right? Which most of you should know, or at least some of you should know that it, it, it means God's covenant love or God's faithfulness, or simply you can think of it as God's special grace, but it's hesed. And it also says that these two women were aided by the wind, okay? But the Hebrew word for wind is ruach, Okay, and ruach can also be translated to, uh, to mean the Holy Spirit. So what do you end up with here? If, you, if you're a Jew, like looking at your, your language and this is, this is what you read, I mean, what you have, you have a, a picture of two women who are essentially aided by the Holy Spirit and taking flight by the wings of God's faithfulness to carry our sin to a faraway place called Shinar. That's the picture. Now, would you happen to know what the significance of Shinar is? Well, let me tell you, okay? I, I didn't quite know. I, I forgot if, like, someone, if, if Elder Uj put this in trivia out of, like, I'm not sure what Shinar is, but then you had to look it up, and then you learn quickly that Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was erected. Right? Genesis 11 basically tells us people settled in Shinar, and they just built this tower, which was meant to be an expression of human arrogance and pride. They were challenging God, right? giving God essentially the middle finger, right? doing whatever they wanted to. So in this vision today, a clear, a clear contrast is made between the place of God's holy dwelling in Jerusalem and the place where humanity chose to reject and rebel against God, right? You have Jerusalem, right? And you have Shinar, the place where God and his people, or God's people rather, rebelled and rejected him. Right? The former places where God was exalted, uh, and the latter places where humanity was exalted. The former place of Jerusalem is where forgiveness and mercy is offered. The latter is where judgment and condemnation is present. 
place of life, right place of death. And it's by his wings of grace we see God busily transferring our sin to a faraway place like Shinar so that his house and his people would be kept pure. Now the Jews would have been very familiar with this idea right, of sin being transferred out to a faraway place because this was the job of the priests. Right? In Leviticus, you have a picture of, of two birds. This is how, this is how the priests cleanse uh, folks from leprosy. Right? One bird was killed, its blood was shed. The other bird, guess what? Was set loose, it says, to fly free, far away into the open field. And, and that was meant to symbolize the patient's disease being carried far away from where God's people resided. The same thing was done with goats on the Day of Atonement. There are two goats. One goat was, was killed, his blood, it's, its blood shed. But another goat, right, what we call the scapegoat, was driven far away into the wilderness to symbolize how God intended to remove our sins right, as far as the east is from the west. Right? He will remove our transgressions. So that, that's, that's been sort of part of the Jewish psyche from long ago. I, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, but most people, they treat sin in such a cavalier manner as if it's something that God should simply ignore or overlook. We get frustrated. God, can't you just ignore? I mean, why are you gonna make a big deal of sin all the time, right? Why are you gonna be so fixated on sin? Right? Can't you just overlook it? But that, see, that, that's what people like us think. That's how we think, because we're unholy people. We don't get it. We don't have that attribute of holiness. We don't understand God. God is holy, right? And he must judge sin, and he must remove sin to a faraway place for life to be preserved. We don't get it, but see, if, we, if you don't get it because we're not holy, then we must trust the one who is holy. So after all that's been said so far, I, I, I hope that your hearts are now ready to appreciate what Jesus has done for us. Because you see, the, the flying scroll, it finds us and it condemns every one of us without exception. And if there was no mercy offered to us, brothers and sisters, we would be like the women trapped in the jar and we would be sent to the faraway land of Shinar. But God in his mercy, God in his mercy placed all of our sin upon Jesus who carried our sins beyond the walls of Jerusalem to a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha where sinners were left to die. Right? That is good news for us. That is an act of grace that we all needed. So what do you think are some practical ways we could apply this teaching. There are many. I hope you can kind of tease many more out during your small discussions this coming week. But let me just offer you three thoughts uh, before closing this message, okay? Number one, some of you have many hidden sins. And you've been busy trying to conceal those sins. And you live that way because you're either terribly ashamed of what you have done or you think that by hiding them, you'll be safe. But that's not true, right? That's not wise, because as you've learned today, it's just not, it's not possible. It's futile, okay? It's not possible to hide from the flying scroll, 
What you should be doing instead is that you should acknowledge humbly how broken and flawed you actually are and how much you need God himself to carry your sins by his wings of grace to a faraway place. And when that happens, that then you will know the joy of living free from the burden of your guilt and shame. Right? You, you, can't, you can't expect mere fig leaves to cover your shame or guilt. You need God to intervene and clothe you with proper clothing. Some of you don't have any peace in your hearts because you haven't yet acknowledged your sin before God or before others. Right? You're too prideful. Now, one good way to test whether you're humble before God is to assess whether you've been actually humbled before other people. Because I've noticed that the person who's able to admit their mistakes, their wrongdoings uh, before other people, like they're quick to apologize. They have no problem apologizing. Right? They're the ones who are also quick to confess their sins before God and seek his forgiveness. That means the one who is very slow to say sorry to others is often, I'm not saying always, but often the one who rarely repents of his or her sins before God. So examine yourself, examine your heart. Where, where do you stand? When's the last time you apologized to someone? <laughs> Secondly, if you're someone, maybe, okay, you don't quite connect with that point, it's fine, you're on the other extreme, okay? Uh, you're on the other extreme, you have no problem at all airing out all of your dirty laundry <laughs> and revealing all that you've done in the past because, quite frankly, you don't think it's all big of, that big of a deal. Like, you don't even think your dirty laundry is all that dirty. Okay? It's like you're airing all this dirty laundry, not because your confidence is in the Lord, but because you don't think, quite frankly, that your, your dirty laundry is all that dirty. Like, what's the big deal? Well, then... If that's where you are, you have a very different kind of problem, right? Your problem is that you don't realize how holy God truly is and how much God is actually offended by your sin. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to get to know God more, okay? You're the type of person who needs to spend a little more time, maybe a lot more time, reflecting upon God's revelation, his word, right? He, he actually tells us who he is. You have to get to know God more. You have to know, right, what kind of holy God you're called to worship. And all those thoughts you had about sin and, you know, minimizing your sin and, you know, what's the big deal? All those will take care of themselves. Last but not least, some of you have grown up in fatherless homes, or if not fatherless homes, with fathers who didn't really fulfill their role very well as dads. And for whatever reason, I mean, I guess our culture has, uh, you know, increased, increasing number of people like that, but I, I, I do know that a good number of you uh, come from such a background. And so you tend to struggle when God is depicted as something like a flying scroll, right, who has this authority to judge you. And that idea actually 
frightens you and it maybe even turns you off and it makes it harder for you to actually draw closer to God. It's a stumbling block because of your relationship with your earthly father. And if that's you, let, let me say that though it is true that, as our passage says, that you, you cannot hide your sin from God, it's also true that there's nowhere you can go where God's grace cannot find you. Yes, sin and death are very powerful enemies, but they do not have the last word in God's story. His grace is always more. We don't want to just focus on what God's law does, what his law brings, which is death. You have to focus on what he offers in response. It's his grace. And Psalm 139 captures this dynamic very well. Uh, Psalm 139 is a psalm that contains these beautiful words, okay? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, essentially. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What is this psalmist saying here? You see, the psalmist is saying that there's no place to hide, but he's not trembling in fear, saying that there's, oh my goodness, no place to hide from God's judgment or wrath. No, rather, he's humbly rejoicing, he's glad, he's happy that there's no place to hide from God's amazing love and grace, his presence. See, even if I ever find myself in the darkest place in this world, the uttermost parts of the sea, he says, God's loving kindness and his presence will always be there for me. It's a psalm of rejoicing. It's a psalm of comfort. It's a psalm of hope. And that should be your story as well. That should be your confession as well. So please do not just focus on the threats of the flying scroll, but remember to delight in the wings of God's grace Remember to rejoice in what God's provision is for you. Wings that carry your sins to the faraway place of Shinar so that you and I could live forever in God's presence. You know, without the judgment of the flying scroll, grace would not sound so sweet. But if we know what exactly it is that God, what God saved us from, then we'll be able to love and appreciate God's grace all the more. Isn't that true? Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, through the vision of the flying scroll and a woman in a jar, we're reminded that in the place you dwell, sin cannot coexist. It must be removed to a distant place. As we have heard from your word, we, we ponder the gravity of sin, why you had to take such drastic measures to deal with it once and for all. And we're grateful for your abounding mercy and grace. You did not leave us condemned and destined to die in a distant place under your punishment. Instead, you placed our sins upon Jesus, who bore them outside the walls of Jerusalem on the hill called Golgotha. There, he paid the price for our sins, offering us forgiveness, redemption, and new life. We thank you for the hope found in Christ. 
May we live our lives in gratitude for this salvation that we have received. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So stand together and give praise to God.